If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to find 1 Samuel chapter 7. It's a little bit of a curveball. I decided uh, middle of the week or so that I was going to uh, approach the first Sunday New Year's just a little bit differently than I originally thought. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. While you're getting there, we're going to have a little, just, I, I find this fun. I hope you do. Um, so Jody and I had just, uh, we took a couple of days, uh, New Year's Eve and then New Year's Day, we went to Charleston. We'd never been there. And um, so we went down and um, on, well, let's see, New Year's Eve day, we, um, we walked around, we went down to the waterfront. We were just kind of a general introduction trying to kind of get our bearings about the city of Charleston. And I... I like history, I like monuments, I like, I, I, those are that, I dig that sort of thing. And so we were walking along and I had, I had Wikipedia up on my phone, we were looking out at um, Fort Sumter, and, um, and so I'm reading and we're walking and some lady walks by and says something about dolphins and Jody's gone, right? Fort Sumter's out here, you know, the start of the Civil War, Jody is looking at the dolphins, that's kind of our life a little bit. Um, she teaches me to appreciate God's creation. I try to draw her back into a little bit of history, right? So let's just have a little fun. Um, and uh, I'm going to read off a few um, monuments, historical markers that are here, there, and everywhere. And um, I thought it'd be kind of neat to see how many of y'all have been to some of these places. So how about we'll just, I'll read them. You give a little, you're not bragging or anything. I mean, some of these are going to be like, if some of you have been there, I want to talk to you, okay? So, but I thought it'd be just kind of neat. So let's just do a couple of these. We'll start close to home, all right? How many of y'all have been to Stone Mountain? Ah, all right. Yeah. So a monument, okay? It's, you know. Not necessarily a popular one for some folks, and it's been, but a monument. Um, let's just move a little bit further. How about the Lincoln Memorial? How many of y'all have been to the Lincoln Memorial? All right, good. Uh, dedicated in 1922. A little history fact. How about the Statue of Liberty? Yeah, a number of you have been to the Statue of Liberty. Vietnam Memorial? Okay. How about the Washington Monument? Do you know 1888? In 1888, when the Washington Monument was erected, it was the tallest structure in the world. Did you know that? In terms of monuments and that sort of yeah, um, it was eclipsed not terribly there long after. Uh, but prior to that, it was a church, a cathedral. I forget which one. But um, all right, this one will give some of you away. Who has been to the Strawberry Fields Memorial? We've got two people on the front row that have been there. If you've been there, you're probably a fan of John Lennon, okay? Um, it's in Central Park in New York City. And uh, let's branch out just to, we'll, we'll do one more. How about, uh, how many of y'all have been to um, Mount Rushmore? Okay, fair number of you. Some people say they've been to Mount Rushmore once. They would never, ever go back. If you've been there, what is, what's the competing monument now near Mount Rushmore? Crazy Horse. How many of you all have seen that? Okay, impressive. 
Let's branch out just a little bit. Has anybody seen the Egyptian pyramids? Oh, a few hands. Wow. Okay. That's impressive. How about Stonehenge? Probably a fair number of you have seen Stonehenge. All right, here's one. You may not realize as a monument. How about the Taj Mahal? I saw one hand. Happy has been to the Taj Mahal. All right. How about this one? Has anyone been to the Astronaut Memorial? I'm glad. No, John, you have not been to the Astronaut Memorial. It's on the moon. (laughs) I was hoping to get one hand so I could do that. It's okay. I, there's probably an, an astronaut memorial somewhere else, but there is one on the moon. And the one on the moon was placed there in memory of, to memorialize all of the astronauts that had lost their life in some space activity up until that point. How many of y'all have been or seen the Ebenezer monument that Samuel raised in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12? It's probably not there anymore. It was about 1500 B.C., give or take 500 years, is when Samuel raised the Ebenezer stone, which was a memorial stone to God. We read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. I'm going to fill in all of the details and get you there, but let's just read this passage. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. And so the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for powerful reminders that you are for your people, that you love us. Even when we are struggling, even when we're prone to wander, even when our hearts are far from you, you tell us you will continue to pursue those who are your own. And so we praise you. We thank you for that. And Father, we ask now as we look upon your word, as we look towards the supper, would you meet with us and do it all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. So, in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, what we find out is that the Israelites were at war with the Philistines. And early in that chapter, what we learn is that they were actually, um, they were defeated in battle. And so they came back and they regrouped, 
And what they had decided was that they were going to take the Ark of the Covenant and they were going to go out to battle against the Philistines with the Ark of the Covenant with them. Now, there's a little bit of shiny penny stuff going on, rabbit's foot here, okay? Um, But there's a little bit of... You just stay right there, little fella. There's a little bit of this passion and desire. They, They know that the Ark of the Covenant is that powerful symbol of God's presence with them. And so they, they were surmising that, okay, if we go out to battle against the Philistines and we take the Ark of the Covenant with us and God goes before us in this battle, we will surely win. Well, that's what they did. The Ark of the Covenant went with them. What we find out in that chapter is that as they went out to battle, it went very poorly. So poorly that that day, 30,000 Israelites lost their lives and many more were taken into captivity. Perhaps the bigger story was that the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. The Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant and they took it home with them. And then there's a whole series of stories about what happens next. And let's just say it, let's just put it this way. Things don't go well for the, for the Philistine cities that the Ark of the Covenant resides in, okay? In one instance, uh, it's there and they have a, a large idol, Dagon, and he, uh, as they wake up and come in the next day, Dagon's face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant, And then people are breaking out in boils and sores and tumors and all sorts of things. Everywhere the Ark of the Covenant went, God's hand was heavy, the text says, heavy upon the Philistine people. But they kept it around for a good long while until finally they sent it back. And they sent it back to the Israelites and Um, What we learn, however, at the beginning of chapter 7 was that during that period, their hearts, the, the hearts of the people of Israel longed for God's presence with them. They were very sorrowful. They, they, um, it was hard on them. There, there were a number of them that, that were sorrowful because the Ark of the Covenant was not with them, which to them, was the presence of God was not with them. God's blessing was not on them. And so the Ark of the Covenant comes back to them. We learn in all of this that there was a struggle in Israel. And the struggle was that the Israelites were worshiping other gods. They were worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs They were worshiping the gods of the people who were around them. We find that out in chapter 7 because Samuel goes to them and and he's confronting them about their sin of worshiping other gods. And they're crying out to God. Now, the ark has returned. And so there's obviously right a, a very powerful reminder right there before them. Okay, God's presence is here. He's with us. Internally, they were struggling. They were wrestling because they knew that they weren't, quote, living right. 
You'll recall perhaps a famous quote and that, come, that comes from John Calvin where he talks about the fact that our hearts are idol factories. Listen, it isn't a matter of if we will worship because we are worshiping creatures. God made us to worship. That is, He made us to have passions and desires that rightly oriented are oriented towards Him. And, and so there's this worshiping component in us that we will worship. We will worship something. If we don't worship the true and living God, we will worship other things. And the people had that. And so they were hedging their bets in, 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 in a way. They were worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs, and they were worshiping Yahweh. They were worshiping Jehovah. They were worshiping the God of Israel. But they were worshiping other things as well. Now, you can imagine, because some of it, uh, some of that worship had to do with fertility. It had to do with um, they were worshiping the, the gods who they believed would provide them with good crops and good land and good harvest and all of those sorts of things. And, and some of those gods were to provide for them fertility so that they would bear children. And so there was a sexual component that was tied up in some of this worship. And so, right, you know, you go to the temple and you worship and all sorts of other things. And there, that was all joined together. And so there was a, this proclivity in their hearts to go that direction and hedge their bets, if you will. All of that because we're worshipers. We will worship, and they were worshiping. They just weren't worshiping the true and living God solely, alone. They weren't loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They were parceling out other portions of their heart to other gods. It's actually easier to do than you think. Wander after other things. Take the hymn that we sang at the beginning, which any of you grab your hymnal? Nobody grabbed their hymnal. Good. All right. Uh, we realized this morning that the hymnal, being a new hymnal, has taken out the Ebenezer phrase. It's not in there anymore. And so we quickly, yes, I know, right? The PCA pastor goes, oh, you're kidding. Yeah. It's one of those phrases that we just, it, it has a little bit of a shock factor to it. We don't really, we, we sing it and we go, what in the world is that? And so they removed it. And we sang it this morning. But the hymn writer, Robert Robertson, he wrote that hymn. There's a, there's a, in the third line, he wrote this, and we sang it. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Now, Robert Robertson wrote that hymn when he was 21 years old. Okay? If you read the newsletter article that I wrote, you get a little bit of the background. He'd gone off to barbering school. And, um, and he was a little bit of a troublemaker. He joined a gang while he was in barbering school. Who knew those barbers were uh, such havoc raisers? Um, but he, he joined a gang, and they went around marauding and, and troubling people. And so 
they were intent on troubling those Methodists. And, um, and so they went to a gathering where George Whitfield was preaching. And the intent was to make fun of people and that sort of thing. And while he was there, under the preaching of George Whitfield, he heard the gospel and he was converted that very day. Now, that's at age 16, 17, 18, somewhere in that neighborhood. So just a few years later, he writes this hymn, passionate hymn about a love for God. Years later, it's recorded that he was riding in a carriage and he heard, saw a woman who was singing or humming his hymn. And so he got down and she had a hymnal and she asked him what he thought of the hymn. And it's reported that he replied to her, Madam, he burst into tears and he said to her, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings that I had then. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It was somewhat prophetic in his life. But he understood, even at a young age, even as a young Christian, that the proclivity of his heart was to chase after other things. The Israelites were no different, and they were struggling. Oz Guinness says this about idolatry. Idolatry may not involve explicit denials of God's existence or character. It may well come in the form of an over-attachment to something that is in itself perfectly good. An idol can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero, anything that can substitute for God. So here they were, struggling to stay focused on the God who had saved them, and Samuel comes along. Sorry. And he leads them into repentance. If you have your Bibles, you'll see it in verses 3 through 4. Here's what he says to them. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, remembering, remember what's happened, right? The ark has returned. Now there's a lot of emotion. There, there's upheaval in them. And so he says, if you are going to return to the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then rid yourselves of all the foreign gods, the Asherahs, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And so the Israelites put away their Baals and their Asherahs, and they served the Lord only. That's what happens. They put away their ashwas. They put away their bales. They were confessing their sin before God. We did Psalm 51 this morning. Pastorally, let me ask you, is confession a regular part of your life? If it isn't, it should be. Not because if you don't confess your sin, you'll go to hell. That's, that's not why you need a good cycle of 
confession, repentance in your life. But because the sin that you and I commit every day bottlenecks our relationship with the Lord. It hinders that fellowship with the Lord because the Spirit of God resides in us. And so it bottlenecks that relationship. So there needs to be, because we know that we sin, there needs to be regular repentance. The people of Israel, kind of in the cycle of that of, of their history, they sinned, they repented, and in that repentance there's often confession that's laid out for us and we see it in Scripture. So they confess their sin. It's during the confession of their sin that the Philistines get word of the fact that they've gathered together for this big worship service. And so there they are, they're worshiping together, they've come, they're fasting, they're, they're, all of the elements of worship are there. The Philistines find out that they're having this service, and what we find out is they, they got their army together and they're prepared to go down to do battle with the Israelites. And the Israelites find out. And when they found out, all they could do was say to Samuel, Samuel, please. Go ask God to intercede for us. And so Samuel goes. He goes before the Lord. He sacrifices to the Lord. He cries out to God. And we read the passage already that God heard that cry. And he thundered against the Philistines. And the Philistines were so rattled. They were so... This is one of those passages. You know know about... You know about the Egyptians going down in in the water. You you know, there's a number of stories you, you know... This is one we just we sort of forget about. That God thundered from the heavens. And he scared the Philistines so badly that they fled. And as they fled, the Israelites chased them and they hacked them and cut them to pieces and chopped them and they just beat them to a pulp as they left. It's really, it's kind of a graphic picture. And then they went back and then we get the story. We get the account. And the account is of Samuel raising a stone, this Ebenezer. That's that's what's going on in, in that passage, is that he's raising this stone up, this Ebenezer. He named it the Ebenezer. And he said, thus far the Lord has helped us. That seems like a very first That passage is odd to us because the word Ebenezer is odd to us. When you sing the hymn and when you read this, you you get the idea that this was a stone that was a memorial. It was a monument to not only what God had just done, and if you have... If you have the ESV, maybe, um, I know if it's the King, if you have the King James or the New American Standard, it says, hitherto, hitherto. And so the idea is not just right now what has happened, but what has happened all the way back. In Samuel's mind, what he wants to do is he wants to jar their memory. And so he raises a monument to them so that they will take notice. That's what a memorial does. That's what a monument does. When you see Stonehenge, you go, okay, what's this here for? 
Um, when you go and you see men's faces carved in rocks, you want to know, well, who are they? What did they do? And so they didn't, they didn't have a stone cutter come along and chisel out the face of Samuel or, or something like that. Instead, they raised giant stones in places perhaps where they hadn't been. You'll remember that after they crossed the Jordan River, they took a pile, they made piles of stones in the middle of the river in order to memorialize what God had done so that when generations after them would come along behind them, you know, as a father's son were camping in Gilgal National Forest, they would say, hey, dad, what's this pile of rocks? And then dad would go, oh, that pile of rocks. Yes. Why, that commemorates the time that God let the people cross the Jordan River on dry ground. Or in this instance, that is a memorial stone that was raised by Samuel for the purpose of helping us remember everything God had done for us all along the way. Not just the times He rescued them. What about the time He What about the times he squeezed them? What about the times he disciplined them? Are those good times too? Difficult, but aren't they good? Knowing that you were corrected, knowing that someone saved your life from going over the edge, knowing that God rescued you in a moment in which terrible things were about to happen, you were going to make really poor decisions. And that's what he did. He raised a stone to jar their memory, to cause them to recall all that God had done for them. That God had helped us thus far, he said. Now, what else does that do? What else does that memorial do that he raises? Well, if God helped us back when we were a fledgling people off in Egypt, When God rescued us this time, when God rescued us that time, what it does is it's a sure hope that God will do the same thing going forward. That He will be that amazing God to us in the future. And He will rescue us. He will stay with us. He will provide for us all that we need. Because He is our God and He's been with us all along and He will be with us in the future. So this morning, we're coming. It's January 3rd. It's the beginning of a new year. Honestly, just, just honestly, I'm just not a fan of New Year's. I don't know why. Just, I've never been a fan of the, the season. But I am a fan of new beginnings. I am a fan of new opportunity. And so there is a sense in which the new year provides for us going forward a new start, a fresh start. That's why we, that's why we do the things we do at New Year's. We talk about how we make resolutions and those sorts of things. But what a great opportunity for us as a church to stop. Because listen, every time we gather together, In worship, we raise our Ebenezer. Every time we gather together, we say, Hitherto, look at what the Lord has done for us. Okay? That's one of the things that happens in our corporate worship. As we are saying, 
Look at what God has done. We look at the person of Jesus. We, 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 read the, we read the Word. We listen to it preached. We sing hymns, all of which extol what? They don't extol us. They extol God, our great God, our Creator, our Sustainer, our Redeemer. And so every time we come together, our praise is an Ebenezer that we raise. It's a sign. It's a symbol. But especially when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Why? Because in the Supper, we have a memorial. It's not merely a memorial, but it is a memorial. It's a memorial to what God has done for us. It's as if Jesus raised the Ebenezer for us when at the Supper He told them to do this. To gather, to celebrate His death, His resurrection, His sacrifice for us. And so here at the beginning of a new year, as we start fresh going forward, we have an opportunity before us, we've already done it in Psalm 51, to confess our sin. Corporately, together, to say we've not been the people that you would have us be. We've not been focused on what we should be focused on. We've not been passionate about the things you're passionate about. On and on it goes. Individually to confess our own sin. And to look at the memorial that he's given to us. And to know this. He has provided exactly what we need for life and for eternal life. Because at the moment of our greatest need, right, while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. And so that's where we are this morning, gathering together to celebrate this memorial that Jesus himself set up. For the purpose of what? Not to make you feel bad. But for you to know His love, His grace, and His mercy. It's a memorial meant to jar your memory. To awaken you. To enliven you. So that we will be thankful. Ralph Davis put it this way. Samuel knew that it is memory that keeps gratitude fresh, and that gratitude keeps faith faithful. Samuel knew that it is memory that keeps gratitude in our hearts fresh, and that gratitude keeps faith faithful. As we come this morning before us as a memory of all that Christ did for us, in His death, burial, and His resurrection. And we get to celebrate it together. Would you join me as we pray? Father, thank You for what's before us in this meal, and the celebration. It is right here, a table set by Jesus Himself, that we would be able to celebrate Your goodness to us in all of life. We thank You. We praise You. Father, fix our hearts on You and on your Son, and do it all for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.